On this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I are reunited and it feels so good. We talk about my recent golf excursions, which Rufus informs me I've already talked about quite a bit. So that's a little embarrassing. And then we get into where you can find more alpha, like a seeking alpha kind of episode around both golf and baseball. So back and start the process. Bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media Welcome to sports another episode of the Bet the Process podcast. Where Rufus and I are reunited. This is exciting. I feel like I haven't talked to you in a long time. Um, I miss your face. I miss your newly chiseled body. Um, I don't know if that I should say that out loud, but, you know, you've been doing a lot of physical self-care, working out. You know, Rufus told me he can bench press more than his weight, which means I think triple digits, right? That's good. Yeah. You know, 102 pounds, baby. That's nice. Yeah. Um, how have you been? What have you been up to? I have, I've been good. I've been kind of homeless for a little bit. I'm waiting on uh, a house or not a house, a condo that I'm buying to close, which is going to be a little bit of a while. So I'm at the moment up in Maine for kind of the time being, because it's too hot to be in Vegas really. And so I played Golf. I, I stayed with my brother for a little while down in Portland. We played some golf. I won two out of three of our golf matches, and we actually had a round where we both shot in the seventies, followed by a round where I shot in the nineties. Um, and now we're we're up in my parents' place in Blue Hill. We're playing a lot of Scrabble and gin rummy and backgammon, and we need to, we 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 need to have a cup for like those things. We basically just play a lot of games. And uh, right now I'm up like 480 to 250 at our, our running tally of gin rummy. And, uh, you know, I'm going to the gym every day slash running, um, working, working hard, kind of having some monk-like work focus for a little while, just because it, it's hard. It's been very hard being on the go so much to really do that. And I'm kind of in a place now with, without that many distractions, which is, which is what I need. So that's kind of my life update. How about you? You've been on a golfing binge of really, really nice courses. Yeah, I've in the last, I don't know, probably two months, I've played uh, a hoopy match play, which was in uh, Georgia. It's, it's incredibly interesting. Gil Hands course just got named, I think, top 30 or top 40 in the U.S. Um, 22 holes. You play them two ways, depending on the morning or the afternoon. Um, the morning is a shorter par 70. Um, it might even be a par 69. But there's like no tee boxes, which is kind of cool. So they kind of like you play these holes all differently. And then the the, the afternoon, they play them uh, pretty long. Um, and it's what's cool about this course is there's only about 40. So Rory is a member here. I think Rory might have been like a founding investor or something. Um, but you, you show up at the course and 
essentially there's only about 40 people on the facility at any time and everything's inclusive. So you check in once, put your credit card down. And then after that, everything's inclusive except for like really premium alcohol. Um, and, uh, and it's just, it, it, it was just such an amazing experience. Um, we played, uh, I think, let's see, uh, there 72 holes over the course of like a day and a half or two days, roughly we played 18, 36, 18. Um, and, uh, I, I think that was just one of the best golf experiences that, that anyone could ever have. And then I, I got obviously, uh, the opportunity to play Cyprus, um, which was, so Cyprus has something called unaccompanied where, you kind of show up and um, you can't use the driving range. You can't like go inside to the restaurant, but you play with, uh, you know, uh, and they do this really primarily to keep their caddy program going because they just don't get enough rounds. So you go out first and, and, but I got to play Cyprus with uh, three friends and it was, it was pretty incredible. Um, Jeff, I feel like this is the third laughing about it's the third straight podcast episode. You've told us about your Cyprus cypress trip unless you played it multiple times oh i didn't know we'd actually like talk <laughs> yeah. about cypress at all oh yeah well then why didn't why didn't you stop me oh, Did no. I, talk about I, I didn't want to interrupt you but a hoopie sounds really really interesting it sounds kind of old school like the way golf used to be where you know there wasn't a standardized 18 holes like long 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 ago yeah i mean i don't I don't know much about the history of that. I mean, I think, you know, I just got, I could just got back from Bandon and in, in five days at Bandon, uh, sorry, three days at Bandon, we played all five courses. So um, we played uh, 18, uh, sorry, we played 36, 36, and then 18, but we played all five courses. 18 in one day. Um, and one of you the things didn't like did, replay the, like, your favorite one. Which one? I don't know that that last day of only 18 holes. That's kind of weak. Well, you, there's only five courses. So, I mean, well, what do you mean? Right. But so there wasn't an, a course you wanted to play again that you really liked so much. Uh, well, the way the flights worked, it's just there's only two flights, there's only one flight a day. The way the flights worked, we didn't want to stick around because we would have really had to stick around another full day. Um, but one of the things we did that I think that's a pretty good pro tip for those of you guys that are playing Bandit is there's a casino there in Coos Bay called the old mill or the mill casino. It's like the mill casino and RV park, which is the name of the place. And they will, if you stay there for a night, they will pick you up from the airport, drive you to the casino in the morning, drive you to Bandon dunes and then pick you up from Bandon dunes at the end of the trip and take you to the airport. And it costs $250 for eight people to do all of that. So how much casino play do you have to give them? Was that a showstopper, Rufus, for you? No, no, I was, I was curious. What's that? No, how much do you have to give them, get them out of casino play, or are you staying, staying in the hotel? They don't even rate you. They, they, yeah. yes, you stay in a, you stay okay. in their hotel, but they, is they it don't a nice even, hotel? Their, their hotel's like two hundred. What's that? Is it a nice hotel? It was fine. It was okay. like staying at a, you know, a Marriott or something like that. Okay. It wasn't, it wasn't bad, and uh, you know, it, it was. What was funny is, and you always hear about me bitching about the baseball betting, 
But the day that I was there, I will always remember that casino because we went nine and zero that day. <laughs> and they had like a sports book there because this is Portland. So I got to like watch in the sports book, right? Which was basically a, a sports sports bar. I mean, this is Oregon, sorry. So, and they have legalized sports betting. So I'm, I'm so glad baseball's good. turned that around. It's turned around a little bit. Still got a long way to go before it really turns around, but it's turned around a little bit, which has been good. Um, can we talk a little bit about the podcast you did with Tom last week? Sure. There was one theme that you guys talked about that I found interesting and it had to do with this idea of um, golfers that like, like Jordan Spieth and Colin Morikawa to some degree that like really hit, you know, Justin Thomas or whatever that you, you had this theme of these golfers that succeed right away, see a lot of success and then kind of like have to quote unquote reinvent themselves and I was thinking about this whole idea, like, you know, because you do actually see it in other sports, like you see starting pitchers come up and the first two or three yep. outings really, really kill it or, or hitters see tons of fastballs and like kill it. And then the league adjusts to them. But golf is interesting because there's no adjustment, right? You're not playing like other people can't change. You know, they don't, what they do doesn't impact you. So why do you guys, why do you think that this happens? Like, like, why does, why does a golfer succeed like so much? Or is this just anecdotal and like, you know, like, like, cause you guys were talking about it. And what I was interested in, as you talked about it was really like diving into like root cause. And if there is any like kind of interesting root cause to this. Well, first off, think about your golf game and how it changes and how it isn't linear. And so most of these guys that are, on tour have, I mean, well, they're, they're the elite of the elite. And so they probably haven't dealt with as much adversity. And even when their game has been slumping, when they were younger, they still were at the top. But I think one, one thing is golf is basically an individual sport. And so it's you and the ball and there are, are it's easy to practice exactly what you're going to be doing in a tournament. And I do think that there is this sense that if I try different things, I can continue to improve. I can take take my game to the next level. And I think you see guys tinker. I mean, look at Tiger Woods, how many swing changes he's had. There's some guys that have that have done that. I mean, Padraig Harrington constantly tinkering. Jim Furyk would buy a different putter like at the local golf store. Um, actually buy a bunch of them every Wednesday and figure out which one he wanted to use that week. I mean, there are, are guys that are obsessed with like, how can I get, how can I take it to the next level? And, and I think sometimes when you try to do that, you kind of lose what got you there. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe you kind of maxed out or, you know, and when you, you know, when things run hot, when your putter's hot, you're going to win. Um, and maybe you'll be like 10th in the world, but you know, maybe you don't have that. Maybe tinkering isn't going to find that extra gear to get you to Tiger Woods status or anything like that. But I think it's in the nature of elite professional athletes to want to be the best and to keep trying things to try to be the best. What do you, do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I just, I guess I just don't, 
And again, if you go back to this Jordan Spieth and Colin Morikawa and just this whole conversation that you guys were having around golf trajectory, um, I mean, do you feel like golf is a more mental game than other sports, meaning your actual performance varies more based on your mental state than I other think sports? So. I think so, and I'll tell you why because there's more time to think if you're like an NHL goalie or something, you're reacting more than anything else. If you're, you know, in other sports that are more fast paced, that's what you're doing. I mean, think about like a, a kicker being an NFL kicker is a very much a mental thing because most of your time is spent thinking and not doing. So that's my theory. The more thinking time there is relative to doing time, the more mental a sport is. So because there's more mental time, there's more time for the mental piece of it to affect you? Yeah, I think so. Hmm. I mean, I don't know if that's true. I don't either. Because it's not exactly falsifiable. What's that? I mean, we could think about other sports, but... Well, I mean, that's, I, a, sport again, that's, like, a sport that is more athletic. I mean, think about something like track. How much of a mental game, sport is that? Like if you're a marathon runner. I mean, I, yeah, I will say having been, right? a, having track, been a runner. Track and field, there's a ton of downtime, I, right? I will say Swimming, having a ton of downtime. between races. You're right. I will say having been a, a decent cross-country runner in high school um, and indoor track. I was a mental midget and it was very hard mentally because, because but that's because, I mean, I put a lot of pressure on myself, but also you go into a race knowing that to have run your best race, you need to not, like if the finish line were 10 yards further away, you wouldn't be able to make it there. You would collapse. So you're pushing your body to the physical limit. And so that's hard mentally before the race. But once you're in the race, I mean, it's still as hard. I'll be honest. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if we have an answer to this, um, but it, 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 I mean, is it something that you've known? I mean, I guess like when you think about golf modeling and you know, the, the sort of like, and, and I know you don't want to give up too much about your golf modeling, but you talked a little bit about this idea of mental and the, the mat like majors and things like that. And I thought that was interesting, but like golf is like one of the few sports if if there were a continuum, right, around recent performance and um, you know, like the impact of recent performance in sports versus like long-term performance, where would golf fit in that continuum? Pretty heavily towards recent. Would you I say it's more like than sport that has the more than baseball? more than football i'd say at least we on a week-to-week basis yeah um i'd say more than basketball for sure yeah more than the major sports and we don't know why that is right we just you just you just know that that's the case from looking at the data yeah the golf swing is a funny thing it really is you can it can be working and then it can be not working 
You see um, players, I think I might have mentioned this, guys like, I mean, Kevin Na had that year in I think 2021 where he was just playing really well. His approach game was dialed in and, and you know, he was he's in his 40s. You kind of didn't expect that kind of late career resurgence and he parlayed that into a live contract. But you, I mean, and just as quickly, you know, it can, it can go, but when you're in that, in the midst of it, I mean, it's, it's, it's great. And you kind of see, you see this with a lot of golfers careers, you know, these, these sort of peaks and valleys, you know, Steve Stricker was in the, in the wilderness in the what mid early to mid two thousands, maybe after being, having been maybe like around a top 10 golfer before that, and he completely lost it and he had to get it back and he did. So that's kind of where, what I was thinking about in terms of reinventing yourself. I mean, there are going to be these times when you lose your game. When, when Colin Morkawa was having that level of success, was he outplaying his metrics? Because I don't feel like Colin Morkawa mm. is someone the Sharps have ever really liked. Oh, I liked him right when he came up out of college. Like we were all over him all the time. I don't know if you remember that, Jeff. I still remember him losing um, what this was because uh, I was in the same house in Maine, uh, 2020 Charles Schwab. It was the first event back from COVID and he, what he missed like a three footer on 18 that would have won it, I believe, and lost in a playoff to, I think Daniel Berger. And it cost us a lot of money. So we were, we were early on Morikawa and then, and then because of all the early success he had the market kind of the hype train, got ahead of my numbers and I wasn't on him for a while, but I've been actually I mean, on you... him a little bit this year. How, how do you like resolve those types of situations and like the Wyndham situation and the ROM situation where you've been on these guys and then the market kind of catches up and then they kind of break through even more at that point. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And, and I'm on them and they don't basically, they don't really get the wins until the market catches up. Right. It happens sometimes. Like there's, there's, you know, either, either, either I'm going to go to the market or the market's going to come to me. Basically it's, it's not going to be the case where there are years and years where I'm continually high or low on a golfer, generally speaking. There are a few exceptions. I mean, Tiger, I would not have been on back in the day because of just how much public interest there is in him, things like that. But it, it you know, there are times when we hit guys uh, outright when, you know, that, that guys that kind of come out of nowhere and before the market catches up and there's times when it doesn't happen. I mean, and, Look, we hit we hit our first big outright in a while. It feels like last week with Keegan, so that was nice. You had Keegan. Who did you have? A lot of other guys. Um, we had Keegan. We had a Brian Harmon like each way thing, which was nice too. But we had some Rory. And Keegan was the guy we had the biggest position on pre-tournament actually, so that was nice. Our matchups unfortunately did not do very well, so the Keegan outright win got us to a very small profit on the week. We had, uh, if you want my tilted moment of the week, it was Chef. The, we had a matchup of Rory against Scheffler, and Rory coming out in round four was two back of Scheffler, and you kind of knew, given that he was basically out of contention, that Rory was going to actually shoot a really good round because 
that's what Rory does. He's the king of the backdoor top 10. And he was up by four. He'd finished um, he'd up by four on Scheffler. He'd finished Scheffler had five holes to play or six holes to play, I guess it was. And Scheffler goes five under on his last six holes and we makes a 13 footer on 18 and we lose by one. So that wasn't fun. And that was like a plus 150 something bet too. Hmm. So um, how's your golf been generally this year? Um, how has our golf betting been? Yeah. Uh, I would say it's been not as good as I would like. Um, I think we're returning, we're holding around 3%. We're doing a lot of volume, which is nice, but, but not as, not as good as I'd like. I mean, we've, we've, based, we've been struggling big time on our outrights and like the top fives that's, we've had some pretty negative variants there and there's some stuff I'm working on trying to incorporate. That's, as I've said, a lot of times, like when, when things don't go my way, I kind of try to double down on the hard work to, to, uh, to get better. Do you, do you think there's anything that the market has caught up with you on, or do you think things are different in the market? No, I mean, they, the markets, the market's always catching up. It's, it's a constant battle. Like, you know, the, if my model, if I use the model from eight years ago, I wouldn't be winning. I don't think things are always changing. There's more data available and you're having to continually evolve to, to keep up. I mean, I think it's kind of like in sports probably, right? Is there any, do you have any, any like characterization of how the, how the market is caught up like in this, in this, in this year? Cause I mean, there, there's a lot more good information data out there for sure. I mean, and, and you know, sites like data golf have more of an influence on the market and, and they put out ratings. And so the books aren't necessarily going in as blind as they used to be. Um, but again, if you know what's shaping the markets, then you can figure out what the weaknesses are of those things and figure out what they're not incorporating and kind of find other sources, find sources of alpha and continue to improve. And that's kind of what I'm continually trying to do. And I've actually, um, I've made some pretty big strides this year, actually. And so I'm, I'm pretty excited about some of the stuff I'm implementing. So that's a really interesting process, right? It's how do you take a winning model and then try to improve it by understanding where the market is catching up to you and then trying to figure out where there is additional alpha that the market is not, you know, like, do you, is this a diminishing returns thing? Or do you think that this is a zig when the market's zagging and there's only so much the market can, can like, do you think there's a ceiling to this where there will be no more alpha for you to capture? I'm sure there is a ceiling. I mean, let's, let's for a second compare it to baseball where, you know, my model in 2010 was largely based on sabermetric principles. I mean, my senior thesis basically found that there were market inefficiencies based on the whole fielding independent pitching metrics, basically that pitchers can con control strikeout rate, walk rate, home run rate, but batting average of balls in play, that is kind of outside their control. And so that was good um, for a while, but the market caught up and towards the 
end of my baseball betting, I remember often I would be betting on guys on pitchers that looked really bad in that regard because the, the market had kind of overcorrected a little bit there. And there's more data now, and we know more about what the things that can impact success or failure on balls in play that pitchers do have control on control over. I mean, before we didn't have the stat cast data, we didn't have, you know, we didn't have exit velocities and launch angles, and we didn't have, um, you know, spin rates and all that stuff. And so with that data, I mean, you can, you can do more, but clearly the market isn't, the, it's not as easy to win now betting baseball as it was in 2010. Um, and you you have to do more and more work to keep an edge. And so I kind of see that happening across all sports, to be honest. But I think it's interesting because ultimately what you, the market can, can overcorrect to things, right? It or can, can become it can, Jeff. overly, what's that? I said it can, but I think also the general trend is that market is towards efficiency. I, I really believe that across markets. I mean, it's true in financial markets. It's true in sports betting markets. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess there, there, there are times when things become so known in the market around analytics that they are overpriced. Yeah, I agree. Cause people say, Oh, this is this, this pitcher has the great strikeout rate, blah, 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 blah. And ignore the sort of limitations of that. But I think it comes down to with everything, like just digging deeper process wise. And what's the underlying cause of these things? I mean, with pitcher's strikeout rate, it's going to be a function of his stuff and his location probably. And pitch sequencing and tunneling and stuff like that, which I guess could get into stuff. And so if you, if you look at it on a, on a pitch level, then you can kind of come up with the fundamental way to predict strikes, swing strikes, strikes looking, et cetera, and predict strikeouts. Right. And so and same thing with walks, same thing with all these things. And so if you're just, if you're someone going off of the, the outcome measure, and it's funny that I'm saying strikeouts and walks as an outcome measure, when in my senior thesis, I called them the process measure for the outcome of runs allowed. But in essence, we're getting, we're, we're getting finer and finer and finer and more granular. And so the, the process, the outcome measures become, um, become also more granular and, and, and our process becomes like really, really detailed. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, it is, but but to your, so your point, where, like, will will wait? You you asked, will most there ever be a, Wait, will there ever Go be ahead. a time when like there's no alpha to be found? I don't know. I mean, Jeff, I've always kind of lived as if things could dry up at any point. That's kind of been my approach. I was always like, you know what? I'm gonna strike while the iron's hot. Make my money now, so that I don't need to later, um, because unlike someone that is a partner at a law firm or something like that. I don't expect my salary to continue to go up or anything like that. I mean, there's, there's no guarantees being a professional gambler. So I've, I'm lucky that I still do have alpha, but it's quite possible. There's a time when I don't. So I'm going to try to, uh, I'm, I'm going to try to figure out if that happens, how, where I, how I pivot and, or just live on investment income. 
Um, did but, you see the? But, I mean, pivot. I would need. To, I'll need to pivot into something because can you imagine me doing nothing? I can imagine Maybe. you talking about it. We could have a daily podcast. When I lose my alpha, we'll have a daily podcast, but then nobody will want to listen because they'll be like, why would I listen to this has been? Well, I mean, I think, again, like I think there is, I I can't imagine you doing nothing. Um, I, I think sports betting, broadly speaking, and I think about this a lot, because people ask me a lot about the U.S. market and whatnot, I I think it's a very interesting. It's going to be interesting what happens in the in the U.S. because, and where it evolves and how the market evolves and where the opportunities to get down and where the opportunities for alpha are. I think there's going to be opportunities for alpha for a while. And and what what I yes. what I find interesting is, you know, a lot of the smarter people on Twitter. We'll talk about how dumb it is to try to bet into like really liquid markets, right? And really liquid markets, meaning like an NBA game, like right before post, an NFL game right before post. Uh, you know, I mean, where do where do you you have definitely taken the point of view that betting into these really liquid markets is not really where you want to make your living. Um Yes. So like, where do you, where do you think about yeah, if no. you were uh, a new better again, we've talked about this, I guess, like, Oh, you would look for opportunities for some of the, like the thinner markets and things like that. Um, in this day and age where the market is evolving and sports betting is evolving. Do you think that's even more the case or do you think there are opportunities with like some of these like markets, I guess, if you believe they tend towards efficiency, I kind of know the answer to that, but maybe I'll let you still say. Well, first off, I do think there'll be a lot of alpha the opportunities available in in sports betting in general for a while, just in terms of smaller market stuff, props, capitalizing on you know books, mispricing, same game parlays. I mean, there's always things like that. They have so much surface area to defend that there, there's a lot of opportunities there. And so if you're getting into betting, that's, and you know, that in trying to build a bankroll, that's, that's the best way to do it. But I kind of got into sports betting on the, through the odds making side, through working for LVSC and kind of from an academic side. And so I always took it as sort of a puzzle, a game to solve. Um, and that game was, finding an edge against a closing line of a at least semi-major market. I mean, that's Massey Peabody was built and tested against NFL closing lines. And for a long time, it, I mean, it had in our, when we built it, it showed, it showed predictive power against the closing line, like a lot of it out of sample. And that was the case for us betting it for six or seven years, at least. And before the data got a lot better and we didn't really continue to evolve as much. And so I think that that's like, I've always approached it that way, I guess. And so when I'm talking about there not being alpha, I kind of mean in terms of being able to actually win against a pretty efficient, like liquid market. And I know golf is not a huge, huge market, but and neither is college basketball for that matter. Um, and college football's a little bigger. Um, but I mean, those are all small compared to like soccer 
or the NFL. So, um, and what was the, what was the last part of the question? No, I just, I, I think it's interesting to think about like where the most, you know, do you think liquid and smart or efficient are interchangeable? Yes and no. I mean, I, I've gotten shit on Twitter for saying that um, that I thought Nate Silver's soccer stuff for the World Cup had alpha. I don't think his numbers were quote unquote correct, but I thought they were directionally correct. And people are like, oh, well, you know, it's such a big liquid market, like, and, and basically just trolling me um, about that. And I do think that there are edges and biases in liquid markets. And I think the World Cup is actually a prime example because it is like the Super Bowl. Um, it's a huge, huge betting event. And you kind of hit that threshold where an event is big enough where instead of becoming instead the market becomes more liquid but instead of becoming more efficient it actually becomes less efficient because you have so much more square money and i know we've talked about this before but in that case it's not like yeah, I mean, this are is mayweather say, yeah i mean the mayweather thing mayweather. was it was i don't think i mean it was a big liquid market and there was a lot of participation by recreational betters and it was also um so I guess it qualifies, but it's not as big on the scale of like the World Cup or anything like that. It was in a, I think the Mayweather thing was a few different biases kind of stacked on top of each other. Would you agree with that? The whole fact that people, yeah, love, I mean, I, you have an unknown that people love the under, love the underdogs and the big lottery payouts, et cetera. I, I just, I find this to be a little counter, right? Like, unless, because ultimately, you know, the the statement that a market or a liquid market can be wrong and you're, you're sort of a, a uh, you know, you're a fool if you think you can beat these kind of liquid markets um, over time. But I guess maybe there are just like these anomalies from time to time because we know that Look, there are there are and there have been anomalies you can beat these liquid markets over time they're just more difficult to beat right and i there's a there's going to come a point where my skills aren't you know capable of doing it and the new generation with better understanding of i don't know advanced statistical techniques and ai stuff will you know will be able to be able to kind of render me obsolete. And that's uh, what that one guy on Twitter has already said that I am obsolete, but I mean, I will eventually be obsolete, but not yet. I think that just because we say something is I, when we say it's efficient, I mean, it's efficient relative to what it was before and relative to other markets, a market is never truly efficient. And again, this, if we want to get into the economics of it and stuff like, you know, you have weak form, and strong form market efficiency and all that. But my, my point is that it's nothing, it's never going to be perfectly efficient where, I mean, because there's always going to be things that are unknowable. It's just like a model. My model can never be perfect. And that's kind of 
that's what that's the beauty of the beauty of this, but also what makes it so difficult is the fact that you can keep working and you're always trying to attain perfection, but you can never get there. You're always going to be, you can just get, you can get closer and closer and closer, but you'll never get there. Just like Mark, you'll never be perfectly efficient unless it's like a plus 100 plus 100 for a, a coin flip. And then even Spanky will say something about the weighting of the coins or something. So maybe it truly would be minus 100.02 or something. Can, can I, so I'm not, I have no formal economics background. Like I literally have never taken an econ class. If a market were truly efficient, would there be any trading? If the market was truly, it would require trading for the market to be truly efficient. So it's kind of a chicken and egg problem, right? But do you understand what I'm saying? Like if market were truly efficient, meaning like everyone had the right information. I guess, I guess a market- but there's no such thing as true efficiency. That's everyone. my point. Yeah. There's no such that, thing as being that's 100% kind of my, efficient. That's, that's kind of my point also, right? Because if it was truly efficient, wouldn't there be no trading? Because like people wouldn't like, like you, you essentially like people would think the price was the same. So why would they trade? I don't know. Maybe I'm yeah, but also, I mean, the whole point is like like the whole let's the whole get point like is we're modeling real... something like a price like we're modeling and betting on an event whose outcome is uncertain and people have varying degrees of information and those and and by betting they help us discover a market clearing price and it's if everybody had the same information then well. If everybody had the same information, um, we'd all be God, I guess. Okay, now we're starting to sound like Barry Horse. Uh, what what I what I think would be interesting, and if anyone's gotten to the end of this podcast at this point, because we've been meandering, I would love like uh, some of the listeners that's that's real deep in econ to come on and talk about like market efficiency and what it means and. And sort of like, why don't we because get? I, I'm actually maybe going to do this project um, around market efficiency. I have a and good guest. I want to bring in some really smart economists to help me with it. So um, this is a this is a job posting. If you're interested in doing a project with me on this, to reach out to me on this, and maybe we'll have you on the podcast also. I was going to um, say I, I have a proposal for a guest. I don't think that he'll want to do a project for you, but um, but we could. I mean, we we could see if we get 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 Dick Thaler on. That'd be pretty amazing. He might want to be part of this advisory committee that I'm Maybe. going to put together. But yeah, let's get Taylor on. I, I asked Kate about this if he had any ideas of people that might want to work on this project with me, and he he uh, he never got back to me. So if Kate, you're listening, you never got back to me. But Kate uh, is like okay. me; he's very overloaded with work. Okay, last last topic because we've been meandering for a while. Did you see this uh, Shams? Uh, thing on the draft and how he tweeted this out believe it or not i did i, know. I did rufus i did jeff okay so essentially for those of you guys who haven't been paying attention jams tweeted out that something about scoot henderson getting a lot of momentum for being the number two pick the uh FanDuel immediately moved him or or soon thereafter moved him to you know minus 380 or something like that and 
there was some blowback about him driving these bets. Um, I think we would both agree that there was probably nothing nefarious happening, but is there a, you know, the Shams actually gets paid as a spokesperson by FanDuel. Um, Where do you see the biggest moral hazard here? I guess is the question. I, I have one like issue where I, th- I think that could solve all of this. Right. I mean, it seems like to, to an outsider, have it looks any bad. what's that to an outsider. It looks bad. Right. But FanDuel is paying shams because he drives views. That's why that's the only reason why reviews or listens or whatever engagement. And so I, I mean, all these companies are hiring. I mean, they, they have podcasts, they own media things. I mean, they're, I think it's completely unrelated to their core business. And so I get how it looks like it's some sort of big moral hazard, but I don't think in reality it, it's, I think it's much ado about nothing. How about if you required two-sided markets? Yeah, but so yeah, but, but Jeff, it's then you just say, okay, let's make it minus 10,000 on one side. And then, you know, uh, just have a ridiculous hold on a market. Sure. But I, but I still wish they would do that though, because then at least the the better is like, wow, this looks like a really, this market looks like quite a ripoff if they're charging this much on this side. Yeah, I agree. I agree, um, I agree that that's, Sort of like uh, would be a good way to do it personally. What's your solution? Anyways, okay. What's your solution, Jeff? You got anything else for me? Well, I wanted to hear your solution. Two-sided market. Two-sided market. How would that have solved it? Because in the two. Well, in that in that case, like people could have profited from his knowledge on the other side, also. Right. Right, but theoretically. They could have bet against it, right? So is the whole point that FanDuel would use Sham's information and or have I, I don't even well what what's the whole what's the whole issue that Sham, that FanDuel has the, the this issue information is that, or... is that the issue is theoretically that he drove people to bet on a losing bet. You know, in the most nefarious case, he drove people to bet on a losing bet on purpose to drive revenue for, for FanDuel. And the theory, okay. and if if that were the case, if 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 you knew or you had some thoughts that that was the case, you could certainly bet against them. That you couldn't, you can't, because you can't bet against them. There's no ability to to take an a you know differing point of view. Although I guess you know, and the, theoretically, you, you could bet you could have bet on Brandon Miller to be second and and maybe right. I mean, you could I, find I guess ways. And, and there's other markets where I mean, the same thing could happen in a market that was two sided also. Sure. Information coming out. Sure. I guess, I guess, I guess the re- the real thing about this is that maybe we both believe it's kind of like much ado about nothing at the end of the day, because like there are plenty of cases of people doing podcasts and getting endorsed for these. I, I think the bigger thing is again, that this is the, the, the core of these information markets where like someone like Shams can move them so much and whether they should really be things we, we bet on anyways. And right. I mean, that's the big question. Like, should we be betting on the NBA draft and the NFL draft? 
so I mean, we're, we're betting on something that people know basically. And it's, it's not an event happening where there's a bunch of, you know, a ball bouncing random directions, right? It's something that essentially has been, I don't want to say predetermined, but the first pick probably has, right? And then teams know what they're going to do conditional on that, at least to some extent. So it, it's 100% an information game. You're right. It's like betting on which players are going to be in the lineup of a ba- on a bit ba- of, eh, on a, of a baseball game. Like, the manager knows or will make a decision on that. Right. So. Uh, you got any, uh, you got any uh, picks for this week? Who do I have any picks? Um, uh, Gordon Sargent back on the Gordon Sargent bandwagon. Okay. I don't know what, what the price? price is now. Uh, let me, let me give you what my price is. I'll pull this up. I've been I've been Jeff on the R and D bandwagon the last few days, so I've been doing very little with betting. I've left that to to Tom and company. Why does our sheet right now? It's selected for just cut, make or miss cut. Okay, now I can see outright prices. I make him fifty eight to one. Wow, and there's some seventy seventy fives, et cetera. Um, also, what do you make Fino? I make Fino 16.7 to one. Uh, my the favorite is Ricky Fowler. At what I make him 13.95, 1350 at Chris. Um, I mean, you can get so a 14 exciting, to one. The, the, the best price in the market I can see is a 14 to one. So Penny has 1404. So if you want a edge of 0.58%, there you go. And widely available edge of 0.31%. Maybe I should bet it just be- just because when Fowler wins, it'll be uh it'll be fun to root for him. Probably. I get Chris has 1350 to one. So there we go. Well, that's not an edge. I mean, the, the real question is, is he well, it's an edge if he wins. That's true. Because if he wins, yeah. it's one. It should be. It's it's what? It's a one hundred percent. Well, actually, it's a. If if he wins, it's a. Uh, Minus what? infinity. It's a no twelve fifty percent edge. Sure. There's been some bad math on this podcast. Um, okay, thank you guys for listening this week. Next week we will be back with a legitimate guest. I promise, and you won't have to hear Rufus and I just babble. Um, but hopefully you guys enjoyed getting, I, I like enjoyed getting into Rufus's head a little bit. That was pretty cool. And I enjoyed telling my story about Cyprus for the third time. So with that, um, we'll talk to you guys all again next week. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppeteers are put to end just running off a of leaded. None of it's organic. It all sounds synthetic. That's why I fucks with Jeff Ma and his dog Rufus. No locks of the year. They just tell you what their truth is. Maybe make your pockets fatter as the bookies get thinner. Give the information turn and losing betters into winners. Yeah. Sturm Hahn. Reppin' Rutgers. Jeff Ma. Rufus Peabody. 
Crunching all the numbers. Massy Peabody rankings. We're looking for the edge. Analytically driven. Crunching all the numbers. 